This morning, we'll continue our studies in Jude. I call this one part three, and it'll be verses five to 16. This is a message that I said there the other week that the Lord, after we were done Acts, I didn't know what to speak on or what to do, and I woke up two nights in a row. Jude. Amen. So this is a tough one. <clears throat> it's a hard book. But anyways, so just ask you to fasten your seatbelts, mm-hmm. and we're on our way. Amen. This is a fairly long message this morning. As I said, the first is 5 to 16. But the last time, in verses 3 and 4, we saw Jude stress that truth matters. What a Christian believes matters greatly. And he showed a great concern over the false teaching of some in the Christian church. It was leading some of them astray. And he wanted these Christians to hold fast to the truth of God, to God's word. And he wanted them to have a sound theology based upon the teaching of Jesus, based upon the teaching of the apostles, based upon biblical truth. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. And Jude is pressing that home. And now in verses 5 to 16, Jude is dealing with the main characteristics of these false teachers who are troubling the congregation to whom he is writing. Jude is writing a letter out of concern for, about the influence of certain false teachers. And these false teachers, he tells us in verses 3 and 4, are one of, on the one hand, teaching cheap grace. They're teaching that a person can be a Christian and live in immorality, that the two are perfectly compatible. And secondly, he says, they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know exactly how they were doing this, but if it is anything like the false teachers in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, They were perhaps denying the essential Christian truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the fact that they were doing this and that they are teaching a grace that does not lead to a changed life lets us know how timely this letter is for today. Jude is writing to problems almost 2,000 years ago which are still widespread around us today. We live in a day and age where people want God without rules, without responsibilities, without obligations. They want Christianity without commitment. They want the benefits of Christ and salvation without the cost of discipleship. They want spirituality without the constraints of commitment. And in these verses today, Jude stresses that grace leads to faith, humility, and holiness. Grace believes. Grace humbles. Grace leads to a new life in Christ. Jude is expanding his comments in verse 4, and in verse 5 he tells us why he's writing. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And Jude says, now look, what I'm getting ready to tell you, you already know. I'm not telling you something that you haven't heard before from Jesus. I'm not telling you something you haven't heard before from Paul. I'm not telling you something you haven't heard before from Peter. I'm not telling you something that you haven't heard from the apostles. And I may not even be telling you something that you haven't heard from me. I'm telling you something you already know. And this stands in direct contrast to the false teachers. Because what are the false teachers saying? We've got something new to tell you. And Jude wants to say, no, I've got something old to tell you. He's contrasting his teaching. You can find my teaching, he says, in the Bible. You can find my teaching in Jesus' teaching, in Paul's teaching, in Peter's teaching. I'm not here to tell you something new. I'm here to remind you of something that you've already heard. Papers are all stuck together. I just finished this one at four o'clock last night, and <laughs> I haven't had chance to, to ruffle them up any, but anyway. Jude then proceeds to give three Old Testament examples of God's judgment against sin. And he does this as a warning against those who falsely profess the faith and change the content of the gospel, who use grace as an excuse for immorality. And Jude is telling us these samples to convince us that God will bring judgment against them. And these are the three examples. It's the Israelites in the wilderness, in the verse 5, which we read. The fallen angels who followed Satan, in verse 6. And the situation of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, in verse 7. And first we have the example of the Israelites in the wilderness, in verse 5. God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, only to have them respond in unbelief, doting, and defecting from the faith in God, that he could bring them into the promised land, even to the extent of worshiping an idol of their own making, as well as murmuring against God instead of adoring him. That apostate generation died during 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And Jude <clears throat> is reminding this congregation that he's writing to that just because they were saved does not mean that they can do anything they want to and still come to salvation. He is giving as an example the Israelites, God's people who he delivered from Egypt. They were delivered, but they started complaining and doting that God could take them to the promised land. God made them wander, not wonder, but wander, <laughs> in the wilderness 40 years until those had, who had doted died. So what was their sin? Unbelief. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It does not matter whether it's the Israelites on their way to their promised land or believers in Christ who are on their way to their promised land. We do know there will be some who will stand before Jesus, Jesus on Judgment Day who will profess to be Christians, who Jesus will tell to get away from him. He never knew them. And that's in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. We, as Christians, must walk in the salvation we receive to inherit heaven. Our faith in Jesus saves us. And then Jude's second example, the fallen angels in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now why is Jude speaking about angels? The angels were created perfectly. They were created good. They were just and they were pure. All the angels were created as ministering spirits. And that's Hebrews 1 verse 14. And they all dwelt with God in heaven. There was no sin in them as God created them. They had this as their proper domain. That is, their habitation was in heaven, dwelling in the very presence of God. But immediately after these angels fell into sin, after Satan rebelled against God and brought with him some of the angels, a third of the angels, they lost their proper domain. They lost that habitation, that eternal blessed condition that they would have had had they stayed with God and not sinned. But sin brings about the anger and judgment and wrath of God. These pages. It did so with the Israelites, as we saw in verse 5. The Israelites were delivered out of Egypt. And God fashioned a wonderful deliverance on their behalf as he plagued the Egyptians, opened the Red Sea, they had a tremendous relationship with God as God was looking out for them and fighting their battles on their behalf. Yet, they sinned in the wilderness. They murmured against God. And therefore, God destroyed those who did not believe. Even the angels who had this wonderful relationship and situation with God who dwelled in heaven itself in the very presence of God, could not remain there. God has kept or reserved these fallen angels in a certain kind of relationship. He has kept them in everlasting chains under darkness. And he has reserved them for the judgment of the great day. Now we find similar language in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then in 2 Peter 2 verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations 
and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God did not spare the angels who sinned. He has no salvation plan for fallen angels. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to die for the sins of any angel, nor did he take upon himself the presence of an angel in order to bear their sins. God did not pour out his wrath upon Christ for the angels. That was never God's plan. The angels were not created in the image of God as man was. So God, for his own purposes, never developed any kind of plan of salvation to cover their sins. There is no love of God toward fallen angels. There is nothing but wrath and fierce anger and judgment towards them. And what was their sin? Pride, arrogance. They refused to obey God. They sought a station and position to God that God had not given to them. Even as Satan sought to be exalted in a way that God had not designed for him to be exalted. And therefore they are condemned by chains and in darkness and are presently awaiting God's final judgment. The judgment of the great day when everyone will come before him. And the chains mentioned here are not literal chains, but a God has control on them. And there were, or are, there are or were two archangels in heaven. An archangel is a head angel. Lucifer and Michael. And each of them had a position over the other angels. And the possible reason some of them were following Lucifer was because they were under his command. And when they chose to follow Lucifer, who was now known as Satan or the devil, they gave up their freedom of movement and are only allowed to minister when sent on an evil mission. The fallen angels became demons and are still ministering spirits. The devil or a demon spirit must get permission from God before he attacks a Christian. We are bought and paid for by Jesus Christ and we are his. He says what can happen to us, not the devil. Then his third example, Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Their immorality, their unnatural immorality was wanton. That means it was willful. And so God rained down fire from heaven upon them. Eternal fire illustrates God's fire of earthly judgment which was only a preview of the fire that can never be quenched in eternal hell. The destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah 
is used over 20 times in scripture as examples of God's severe judgment on sexual sin, particularly sexual perversion, abnormal or unacceptable sexual behavior. And from this verse in verse six, immoralities have clearly entered the ranks of believers to whom Jude writes. And we see in this that, that judgment came on these cities because they lived for the sins of the world. And after giving these three examples from the Old Testament, Jude then says, and that is exactly how these false teachers are. He's setting up this congregation to be able to see that by their fruits you shall know them. In verse 8, he describes false prophets in his congregation this way. Likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. The false teachers were arrogant and had their own agenda. And Jude calls these ungodly persons dreamers. They pay attention to their own visions or dreams instead of God's revealed word. And thus we're living in an unreal world of deception. And Jude says, these dreamers defiled the flesh. They were creating their own false world in which indulgence in immorality went hand in hand with salvation. The false teachers even rejected those who were placed in positions of authority in local congregations. They not only preferred error to truth, but also demeaned and rejected those who taught the truth. This is saying that the sins of the flesh lead a person to come against all authority of God and the authority he has set up on this earth. These that Judah is warning us about live their lives to please the flesh. If it feels good, do it. And they had the attitude that God's word does not matter. The dignitaries are those that require respect. And they are probably, the, probably angels, although the word can refer to people in authority. And these, Jude says, are spoken evil of. And in contrast to this, he says in verse 9, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. There is no record in the Bible itself of the archangel Michael's encounter with Satan or a detailed account of Moses' body. There is a reference to it in Deuteronomy 34, verse 6. Jude gets his information possibly from an ancient book called The Assumption of Moses. Now this book is not in the Old Testament. But since this story is included in the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, then we can rest assured that this story is true. 
even though it was never referred to in the Old Testament. Jude's readers would know this story. When Moses died, God sent one of his important angels, Michael, to bury his body. But the devil said the body belonged to him. And this was because Moses had murdered an Egyptian, if you remember that, back in Exodus 2, verse 12, and therefore undeserving of proper burial. Now it would make sense that this event would have taken place. It would have been just like the devil to want to relate to the Jews the exact burial spot of Moses. When the people of Israel said they did not know where Moses was, remember when he was getting the Ten Commandments, he's gone for a long time? What did they do? They built a golden calf. So what kind of a shrine or object of worship do you think they would have built had they known where to build it? Honoring the dead is not a Bible tradition. Moses' death was downplayed. He died on Mount Nebo in Moab and was secretly buried in a place not known to man. And that's Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6. Michael, though opposing Satan, refused to be provoked by him. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you, meaning that God himself would deal with him. But these men, verse 10, I'm not going to look at you, because <laughs> when you yawn, I yawn. <laughs> Did you ever notice that? I know I'm getting off track here. But when somebody, <gasps> then that's the first thing you want to do. So I'll just, <laughs> it's all right, I'm going to. I'll concentrate on not yawning. <laughs> I'm trying not to be boring, but we'll just see what we can do. Okay, so he wasn't provoked and he told him God would deal with him. But these men, verse 10, these men speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things, they corrupt themselves. The false teachers do not know the truth of the gospel because they are blinded by Satan. And that's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. They speak on matters that they do not understand as natural people and not as spiritual people. And that's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. In divine matters, they are no brighter than the dumbest beasts. And that's in Philippians 3, verse 19. And 2 Peter 2, verse 12, which says this, But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. Now remember I said when we started that it was like Jude had the book of Peter sitting beside him as you're writing because there's a lot of similarities. And in these things, Jude says, they corrupt themselves. And this speaks of spiritual and moral self-destruction. In verses 11 through 13, Jude, Jude describes these false teachers. 
verse 11. Jude says, woe to them. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament a woe was given other than when Jesus spoke. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These false teachers are compared to three Old Testament failures. Cain, a tiller of the soil, did not place his faith in the Lord. And the way of Cain is living without God. The way of Cain is the way of pride and self-righteousness. God's laws do not matter. God's word has no value, they say. The Christian life is a separated life. There is to be a distinct difference between the way of God and the way of the devil. The closer we live to the Lord, the less we will desire the things of the world. The closer we get to the flame of his righteousness, the less we will desire the coldness of unrighteousness. This is probably one of the reasons he wanted me to do this. All the time it takes to do this, you could spend more time with him and you don't think about other things. Things of this world grow dangerously strim. Dim. Strim too. It's okay. That come out of the Lord's mouth, not mine. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to have a little humor. I know God loves humor. He created me. <laughs> so he's just there smiling. So look at that guy. <laughs> this Christian separation is like light separates darkness. Water separates land. Ground separates sky. Salvation separates the child of God from the devil. And this separation is to continue until death. And we are to make steps, albeit sometimes they are little baby steps, toward a life of pleasing God. That's why we're here. Now, the error of Balaam, he epitomized the sin of greed. He is a perfect example of the sin of greed. He was a pagan prophet, an enemy of God, who believed he could profit from doing the work of God. And similar to Balaam, these ungodly teachers in the church appeared to be religious. They sought to mix in with the people of God, and they were even accepted by the believers. However, their true motive was greed. The way of Balaam is using one's gifts and ministry for material gain. And the doctrine of Balaam is that you do not have to follow God's laws. You can compromise, and as long as the end justifies the means, it's okay. It's a living picture of turning the grace of God into less viciousness, lustfulness, lewdness. Korah was a Levite who resented the prominent positions of Moses 
and Aaron as God's representatives. The rebellion of Korah was a rebellion against God-given authority. And this dovetails with the rebellion of Cain, who tried to establish himself as God. In verses 12 and 13, Jude says this, These false teachers are spots in their love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up in their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In these two verses, Jude gives metaphors for what these people are like. They are spots, they are stains in your love feast, he says. These men's selfish and greedy behavior was a great danger to the love meals that the Christians shared to support each other, to encourage each other. These men thought only about themselves. They felt no responsibility in love for other people. They're looking out for number one. And where are you? You're way down on the list. Jude says they're clouds without water. Clouds that promise rain but produce none are useless, of no value. These men do nothing to help other Christians to grow in their trust in Jesus. And the word of God is likened to rain in Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. The false teachers were giving hope that they were bringing the truth of God's word, but instead they had no water, they had no truth, they had no rain. Jude says they're like trees that produce no fruit, even in autumn, and are as good as dead. Matthew 7 verse 19 says the farmer burns them. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These men are without roots, without true life in Jesus Christ. So these men are twice dead. Jude says they are raging waves of the sea. The Jews hated the sea. It could be wild and dangerous. Isaiah 57 verse 20 says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. In a similar manner, these false teachers crash like waves, and all they do is stir up moral filth. They are like the dirty rubbish that the waves leave on the shore after a storm. Did you ever notice that? The stuff you get on the beach. Jude says wandering stars refers to shooting stars. When navigating on the high seas, think about this when they're back at that time, or traveling without the benefit of a compass at night, the use of stars are of great value. Stars that are stationary or fixed are of great value as markers. They shine 
with fire bright in the sky. But these false teachers are referred to as wandering stars, shooting stars, or meteorites that one could not use in navigation. First, their movement is erratic, and if followed, could lead to great destruction. And second, is that their light will eventually burn out, which could cause the follower to end in darkness forever. And remember I said these are metaphors, right? And for this reason, we are to listen to the prophet Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. And I'm going to read that this morning from the Message Bible. It's Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. Men and women who have lived wisely and well will shine brilliantly like the cloudless, star-strewn night skies. And those who put... a and those who put others on the right path to life will glow like stars forever. That's our responsibility. And we're going to shine like stars forever. No meteorites. <laughs> the false teacher is a wandering star leading folks away from God. By their fruit you shall know them. And by your fruit others shall know you. And that clues me. But you is proper when you're talking. I'm not pointing any fingers. <laughs> well, I can do it this way, right? Three coming back. Then Jude says in verses 14 and 15, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In these verses, Jude quotes from an interesting book, the Book of Enoch. Now this book is not in the Bible, but was very popular in New Testament times. It is a book attributed to someone who didn't write it, simply put. It may well have been literature that these false teachers appealed to. And so Jude may be quoting from a book that they liked in order to emphasize a point that he could have supported from dozens of passages in the Old Testament. That is, that God is going to judge, and he is going to judge the ungodly. And ten thousands is a Hebrew expression meaning a limitless number. And Jude repeats the word ungodly in verse 15. That's what it is. Verse 15, four times, making the verse one of the most striking in the letter. He keeps repeating the word ungodly to emphasize how bad they are in God's sight. They were not Christians at all. They did not believe that God would judge and punish them. They are making a very great, grave mistake. In view of the wicked nature of evil persons, how could the church allow them to stay in their midst? 
They are ungodly, yet they are with God's people, claiming to represent God. Just as Judas Iscariot appeared to be a follower of Jesus Christ right up to the end, so do these false teachers. And how does Jude characterize these false teachers? He says in verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they speak arrogantly, flattering people to gain advantage. God is going to judge them, Jude says. Now isn't it interesting that he would end this section of the letter saying that God was going to judge false teachers? And what is it precisely that false teachers deny? That God is going to judge. And Jude is saying, oh no, no, God will judge and he will set things right. So believe the truth. Be discerning. Look at the lies of these teachers when they make these strange outlandish claims. And remember, God's grace always, always produces faith, humility, and holiness. This verse 16 describes various ways evil people misuse their tongues. Instead of praising God, they boast. Instead of encouraging, they whine and complain. Their lives are characterized by intense selfishness and a slavery to personal desires. By using flattering words, they try to gain a following for themselves that opposes the proper authorities and local congregations. It says here to be continued. <laughs> that gets at the end there. <laughs> so it's to be continued. Shall we pray? Right. Yes. Before you pray, was, was Enoch not the, the only person that did not die, but just ascended to heaven with God? Uh, what's him call it was? John? Who? Well, Enoch was, and so was um, Elijah. Elijah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Elijah. Enoch was one of Yeah. So there were two. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Elijah. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, we'll pray. And then we'll mm-hmm. go. Look at the time. Oh, I said quarter after. I just this morning after. Don't worry about the time. Don't worry about the time. <laughs> and I'm not going to look at you because she's yawning. And I saw Andrew's yawning too. I'm going to keep on the straight and narrow here. Oh, Lord God, we need the very armor of God to survive this fallen world and to resist the arrows of the evil one and the false teaching of those who would lead us astray. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant us this armor and then help us to wear it and to use it. I thank you, Lord, for the people of this church the Christians that are here in the fellowship that we can share together. Thank you, Lord, that this is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And that this church, or may it be, a beacon to those in the community around us, that they can see us in you.
because we are created in your image. Do they see us in you? And may our doors be open and may they know that they can come to this as a safe haven, as a lighthouse, as a beacon for them. And I just pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.